Tome Show is brought to you by listeners like you. Thanks for using the Tome's Amazon and DMs Guild affiliate links. Hi, I'm Jason Bowman, lead designer for Paizo Publishing, and you're listening to The Tome. Welcome to The Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interview show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. And I'm your co-host, Tracy Hurley, and in this episode, number 263, finds us sort of filling in the gaps as we go and leaving the details to the imagination as we talk to Jessica Price, project manager at Paizo, about pacing and hand-waving advice for all the current and prospective GMs out there. So without further ado, here we go. We're here now with Jessica Price, project manager at Paizo. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. So our traditional first question, when we, particularly when we have a new guest on the show, is how did you get into gaming? <laughs> um, it's actually a really weird story. Um, so I wasn't really allowed to play like video games growing up. My parents played a lot of card games and board games with us, but um, they didn't really see a whole lot of value in video games and just kind of weren't interested in it. I wasn't really like forbidden to play them or anything. It was just, you know, by all my pleading, they would not get any sort of video game console or anything like that. Um, so when I was in college, well, actually, there was the time in college I almost played an RPG, but it <laughs> failed to launch. I was in my constitutional law class, and I heard these two guys that I was sort of casually friends with um, sitting in the row behind me um, talking about playing a Tolkien-based RPG. And this is like right before the first Lord of the Rings movie came out, and I was in a linguistics class with my best friend and roommate, and um, the guy who did all of the Elvish for the Lord of the Rings movies was a grad student and at our university, and so, you know, we had a lot of hometown pride invested in this movie. So we had a, a class where we discussed created languages, and we learned how to say a few wacky things in Elvish, and of course, my friend and I went home and, you know, came up with more wacky things that you can say in Elvish, like, uh, which is Sindarin for, I will lighten your teeth. Um, so anyway, so, a couple days later, I'm in this class, and these two guys in the row behind me are talking about playing a Tolkien-based RPG, and I thought, you know, college is a time for experimentation, that should be fun, so I turn around, and I'm like, hey, can I play too? Um, and they're like, I guess, and I mean, as stereotypical as this is, I guess they had never had a girl ask to play <laughs> an RPG with them before, because they both sort of stared at me for a few awkward, I mean, it was probably a few awkward se- uh, seconds, but it felt like a really long time. And then finally one of them goes, you have to play an elf. <laughs> and I was like, hmm, can I come up? with a snarky reply in Elvish. Oh. And I can. And so I'm like, which means I want to play a dwarf. And they're like, what? And I'm like, you don't speak Elvish? And then they just kind of, um, have you ever seen that moment, I forget what Simpsons episode it is, but where Homer just starts backing away from an awkward situation and like backs <laughs> into a shrub and disappears? They basically did that. I like scared away the RPG players with my Geekiness. Yeah, you outgeeked them. Yeah, which was kind of new to me because I didn't really, I didn't grow up thinking of myself as a particularly geeky person. Like I read sci-fi and fantasy, which was a little bit geeky, but like that's the thing you do by yourself. You know, I was a musician. I was friends with, you know, a lot of kids in sports and theater and stuff. So like I didn't really, 
have a geeky subculture that I was part of. So that kind of surprised me a little bit. But um, so anyway, so yeah, so um, so that didn't happen. Um, and it was, I think, the same year my roommate got an Xbox and introduced. I was I came home from class one day and I was clearly unbearable because I'd been having a bad day and was super cranky. Um, and so she just got in her Xbox, hooked it up, um, basically shoved me down on the couch, put a controller in my hands and was like, here, shoot things until you're bearable again. Um, and I did, and it was really cathartic. Um, and so several years later, she and I were done with college and we were both working at law firms. We were both planning to work for a few years, save some money and go back to law school. Um, when she calls me one day and is like, we need to leave work early. And I'm like, why? And she's like, because at exactly 5.35 today, a payphone a half a block from your house is going to ring and you need to, we need to answer it and give a password. And I'm like, this isn't some sort of corporate drug ring, is it? And she's like, no, it's a game. And I'm like, oh, okay. Does not sound like any game I'm familiar with, but uh, okay. So we find the location of the payphone, which is in the front lobby of the seedy Chinese restaurant. And um, outside the restaurant are all these guys, like 30 guys standing around in the parking lot. We can hear the phone ringing inside, but they're all kind of afraid to go in to answer it. And because, you know, I have no shame, um, I just walked in, picked it up, gave the password, and suddenly was hearing this sort of War of the Worlds style radio drama being broadcast over this payphone. So, of course, this turned out to be I Love Bees, the alternate reality game that was um, a sort of promotion for Halo 2. Um, and if you're not familiar with alternate reality games, they are like running an RPG for a million of your closest friends over the internet, um, except your friends are all playing themselves, and the platform that happens on is the real world, and basically you know, they try and solve a mystery, and you don't get to admit that it's a game, and nobody knows who's actually running it, and they were popular in the early 2000s, and then kind of faded away because they were super expensive and difficult to put on. but they were really cool at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, after it was over, I did a bunch of writing about it, and the guy who owned the company that put it on um, eventually pinged me and was like, hey, do you want a job? And I was like, yeah, I don't think I actually want to be a lawyer after all. And he was like, okay, move out to Seattle, come work for my startup. Um, so that was how I got into video games. And then after getting kind of fed up with video games and their layoff cycle and you know just their toxicity... Um, Lisa and Vic, the owners of Paizo, uh, who I was in their weekly Pathfinder game, were like, well, sounds like you want to get out and we need a project manager. So do you want to come to Paizo? And I went and yeah. <laughs> well, th- there's a, there's a, a step that you skipped there. You went from playing some alternate reality games to being in a weekly Pathfinder game with the, the publisher of Paizo. How did yeah. that, how did, how did, where did the role playing come, come from? <laughs> um, so, uh, this is going to be stereotypical for women in RPGs, but I was dating a guy at the time who was a high school friend of Vic's. Um, and he was, you know, like, I don't know, employee number 20 something at Wizards back in the day. Um, and so, uh, Lisa mentioned him that somebody had dropped out of her game. Um, and wanted to know if the two of us wanted to come join it. Uh, she was running Rise of the Rune Lords, um, and I think she was actually running it like off the beta. Um, I think we actually got our published core rulebooks like partway into the campaign. Um, so anyway, so I was like, sure. I have always wanted to play a tabletop RPG, but you know, the guys in college wouldn't let me. Um, and so yeah, we joined up. It was really kind of intimidating at first. Uh, Lisa's a great GM. Um, but you know, like she was one of the people who started Wizards and, uh, you know, various people in the group were designers who'd worked on, you know, 3.0, designers from Magic. Um, actually the guy who dropped out that we replaced was Richard Garfield, the designer of Magic. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, it was, uh, it was a, a pretty elite group, and I didn't even realize until years later when I started jamming myself how much I learned, because, you know, even after playing with them for 
three or four years, I still felt like the newbie, you know, who didn't know anything, um, just because their knowledge of it was so in-depth and so almost uh, instinctual at this point that, you know, I never had to look anything up. Anytime I had a question, they could just explain to me how things worked and stuff. So I always felt like I didn't know much about it and, you know, that I was the noob. And then I started jamming myself for um, some friends who, you know, a few of them had played back in college, and but some of them were new and stuff. And that was like when I realized like, oh, wow, I actually know a ton about this. Like mm -hmm. I have a ton of knowledge that's just at my fingertips. <laughs> it was just comparatively. So, yeah. Awesome. And so you did mention that uh, eventually you got a job at Paizo. And what does a project manager at Paizo do? <laughs> um, well, I was the first PM that they had ever had. Um, so it, a lot of it was kind of figuring out what parts of their process were not as efficient or elegant as they could be. Um, just figuring out what we actually had the capacity to, to do. Um, it was, everything was sort of chronically behind. Um, I think the line that was in the worst shape was actually a year behind where it was supposed to be, um, which is bad when you, your company largely runs on a subscription model. Um, so it was basically getting stuff to work, um, getting us caught up, which, you know, was not an instant thing. Um, we are now finally caught up, actually had a schedule, but it's been about a three-year process to get us there. Um, and then, you know, producers do kind of whatever it takes to get the product out the door. So um, I have a background as an editor. There was a lot of editing. Um, ended up developing a bunch of books that had no no one that could really afford to spend time developing them, like a few hardcovers. Um, and, you know, it's it's everything from meeting with the executives to help them determine, um, you know, how many products we can do in a given year to getting people coffee if they look like they're, you know, running out of energy mid-afternoon. It's basically whatever needs doing to get stuff published. Do you have any questions, Jeff? No, no, no. So, so this is a great introduction to to who Jessica Price is, and it, and it certainly uh, explains your, if nothing else, your bona fides to to come on and, and be in, <laughs> on an advice episode, right? Or, you know, to give give advice on how to how to run a game, right? So, uh, the the topic I think uh, that we're discussing is is hand waving. Oh yes, my favorite part of being a GM. So, so let's start off with a definition. What, 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 what is this GM hand waving thing? Um, when I say hand waving, what I'm talking about is um, there are a lot of situations when you're playing a tabletop RPG where there may or may not be an established rules convention for how you do a particular thing, um, but it's when you don't know that or there isn't one. And you basically make up on the fly how something gets done. Um, so, for example, uh, in Pathfinder, we have a ton of combat maneuvers, which are if you want to do something in battle that's not just moving or hitting something with your weapon or casting a spell at it, if you want to try and move an opponent out of their position, if you want to try and trip them, if you want to try and... Um, Grapple them. Grapple is kind of the most complex one and kind of a thorn in everybody's side. Um, there are set ways that you do this. And um, grapple is, in fact, so complicated that a bunch of people on the Internet have tried to come up with flowcharts to explain how it works. <laughs> there's a bunch of like, edge cases. And once you've got somebody grappled, there's what happens if they try and escape the grapple and the fact that technically when you're grappling someone, you are sort of grappled too and what you have to do if you want to pin them or tie them up or any of that stuff. So um, it's extraordinarily complicated. And I, I play with a lot of new people and RPGs have so much about them that is really alluring, I think, especially for people um, accustomed to playing video games because there is so much freedom and, you know, you do 
create and embody your character. You're not choosing from a dialogue tree. Your character can say anything you want. Um, but one of the biggest things I noticed that's a turnoff is when you're in the middle of a combat and somebody tries to do something and the GM doesn't know how to do it and everybody stops for like a half an hour and looks it up and argues over what the rules mean and you know it takes all the momentum out of it and it's really like if you're not invested in it if you're just one of the other characters and you're just waiting for your turn it's really boring um so I like to try and keep it moving by, you know, somebody, like, if somebody's playing a monk, right, where their whole thing is combat maneuvers, then I'm not going to hand wave it because I'm not going to um, kind of nullify what the character's about, but then I expect them to know how to do this stuff. But, you know, if somebody just wants to do something weird in battle and they don't know how to do it, rather than having everybody stop while we look through the, like... 9,000 page core rule book to try and find this rule. Um, I just come up with a check that they can make and, you know, on the fly and have them make that check. Um, so it's things like, you know, if they're trying to do something fancy, like, uh, use a piece of furniture to trip somebody else, I will just be like, okay, make me a strength and a dexterity check. Um, and if they get, you know, whatever I've sort of said is the DC for that, it's like, yep, you succeed. And that way we don't have to spend a whole lot of time trying to figure out, you know, weird rules, edge cases. And you know, you have to have, it's not something that is necessarily easy to do if you have no familiarity with the game, because you have to have a sense of like, what's the appropriate DC. But even if you're a beginning GM, you know, I mean, Early editions of Dungeons and Dragons kind of depended on the GM to just figure out how to do mm-hmm. stuff a lot. Um, and, you know, with 3.0, it got a lot more simulationist, where there were rules for how to do pretty much everything, and 3.5 got even more that way. And, um, you know, <laughs> Pathfinder, our whole business is <laughs> making more rules and stuff mm-hmm. for that system. So, um, I think that a lot of our player base has gotten sort of rules paralysis, at least, you know, the ones that talk to us directly on the forums and, you know, on Twitter, on Tumblr, other places, at conventions. You know, they ask us, like, well, I want to do this weird thing. How exactly would I do that? And it's like, I don't know. Like, tell me, how how would you do that? Yeah. So Whereas the are- even the, the newer editions of D&D, 4th and 5th, are... Like, they solved the grapple dilemma by just not really having any rules for grapple. So if somebody wants to do some wrestling, you have to hand wave that whole thing, right? Exactly. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, the rules were always intended to be a toolbox, not a straitjacket. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that, you know, we may have done a little bit of a disservice to our players and GMs' imaginative abilities by um, by giving them rules for everything. Um, and you know, what it comes down to for me is like, you have your six major character attributes, right? Um, strength, con, dex, wisdom, intelligence, and charisma, um, which are intended to like cover at sort of a root level everything that your, that your character can do. And yet we hardly ever make direct ability checks, which has always been sort of strange to me, right? Like your ability scores are kind of the basis for who your character is. And yet we, you know, we use things that are derived from them all the time, but we almost never use them directly. So I like being able to tell my characters, like, or my players, like, yeah, your character has a really high intelligence score. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I know that there are, that we could probably cludge something together with specific skills, but like, your character's super smart, so just make me an int check. And if you make it, they have figured out how to do this rather than, you know, trying to figure out, oh, I don't know, would this be, you know, survival? or So it's just a way to keep the game moving. And it's also, um, you know, you can do it for mechanics things. You can also do it for plot things. Um, you never know exactly what your players are going to do. You never know kind of like what minor NPC detail they're going to get obsessed with. Um, and so there's a lot of like, 
you know, you, you threw together an NPC who's basically only there to tell them a rumor if they're in the tavern, and suddenly they're, like, trying to seek out this NPC again, and they're like, where do they live? I want to talk to them some more, and you didn't plan for that. Um, you know, if you feel like you really want to expand this, you can kind of put them off for a session and take the time to, like, come up with an entire backstory for that NPC and, you know, fit them into the village and come up with a reward. Because I like to reward players' curiosity. Um, but you might have to make something up on the fly. So it's about understanding just, like, what sort of details are interesting. Like, you don't have to come up with a whole family for your NPC. You don't even have to come up with a home. You can make sure that they never find them at their home. Right, you know, you can basically do the equivalent of putting up a storefront in a video game that has nothing behind it and be like, sure, they live there, but you know, you're not going to find them there. They're not there during the day. Um, and you give them breadcrumbs to go somewhere else and, you know, you kind of just guide them away from what's irrelevant and toward what's meaningful by throwing out little breadcrumb details. Like, you know, if this character knows about a theft that took place in town, you know, you have them kind of drop some hints to that and kind of, you know, act like they don't want to talk about other stuff. And so it's basically just about keeping the game moving and keeping the players on the path toward where they're supposed to be going. So I find it interesting because you call it a path. And I know uh, when I talk about this sort of thing, because it's something I, I like and I take a lot from uh, more indie games or uh, other game systems, I always get the question of, well, but isn't that just railroading? <laughs> um, so I come from video games <laughs> where, so I come from originally alternate reality games where there basically are no stated rules, um, but there very much are implicit rules. And you know, we could get in a whole separate discussion about implicit rules and emergent rules and rules that communities and players create for themselves and all that. But um, And because of that, when you're running an alternate reality game, you know, if you're not going to get bogged down in details and if you're not going to let your players get frustrated because they're off in the weeds um, chasing down kind of a rabbit hole that isn't actually related to the main plot, like, you have to figure out a lot of ways to guide people back to the main plot in a way that doesn't feel forced or doesn't feel, you know, uh, that you always want to reward them for being interested in the world. But that doesn't mean that just because they got interested in this one guy, you know, from another continent that you have time to go create the whole culture for that continent and all of the, their history and all of that. So, you know, at some point, just because your resources for what you can create are somewhat limited, you have to guide them back to the main plot line. And then when you look at video games, um, you keep people on the path there just by they're literally not able to do anything that you don't want them to do. The code will not let their avatar do that. So RPGs are kind of in a weird medium in the middle. Um, and yeah, like it is railroady to an extent, but it's also, um, you know, I mean, some indie games are a lot more collective as far as sort of where the storytelling authority lies. Um, but basically, when you're running kind of a traditional D20 game, um, the GM is, also, is ultimately the one telling a set story. And, you know, the players can alter that, and the players have choice and they have agency. But, you know, if you're trying to tell a story about a war between two kingdoms and they get sidetracked, you know, chasing down a minor NPC in the village where, or on the way to the village where they will find out that the war is even happening. It doesn't really serve anybody. Like, ultimately it ends up frustrating because, you know, <laughs> that's not the story that you as the GM have put all the work into. And so, you know, you're not going to be as prepared and it's not going to be as rewarding as, like, the story you're actually trying to tell. I mean, there are rare occasions where it may turn into something cool, but in general, it's like, you know, you're playing this game because the players are interested in the story you want to tell, um, and they want to put their own stamp on it and shape it and be part of it. 
um, you know, if they're, if they end up kind of sidetracked from that main point, you know, it's not as good of an experience for anyone. Yeah, it sounds like more than anything, what we're really talking about is strategies for pacing, right? It's it's yeah. a, it's about not whether it's the rules or the setting or the story or whatever. Uh, it's about what do you want to focus on, what do you what, what do you not want to focus on in order to maintain the pacing at the table that's going to to maximize the enjoyment of the players, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, pacing is one of the things that doesn't oddly get talked about in terms of game design that often. Um, and yet it is so important to whether a story um, is exciting and to whether you stay engaged with it. Yeah, and kind of along those lines too, uh, one of the things that instant, instantly comes to my mind when we talk about hand-waving are also things, um, you, you brought up a lot of stuff in combat, but sometimes out of combat there'll be... Uh, decision points like do you unlock the door or not and sometimes it doesn't make sense to me to have someone roll mm. if there isn't like a interesting failure opportunity mm-hmm. yeah yeah i mean failure one of the tenets you learn if you get any formal training in game design is make failure interesting um in a way failure should be rewarding um it shouldn't feel punitive it shouldn't make people you know, if it's too punitive, people stop wanting to play the game. Um, it should make them want to try again. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of stuff that just doesn't make sense to me that they roll. Like, for the most part, knowledge checks. Um, like, I usually have my players write their knowledge scores in each category on a card and give it to me. And then, you know, when I'm trying to figure out whether they know, you know, I have background information to convey, I'll look at them and be like, oh, okay, well, you know, this character has the highest knowledge or so they're the one that's going to know this piece of information. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are definitely times where you want them to roll, like, if it's particularly crucial, if they're, you know, it's a situation where a lot of times if they're in a situation where they'd be under stress, I'll make them roll because, you know, if you're distracted, if you're in the middle of something stressful, you're not necessarily going to be able to recall as much detail as you might be if you know if you're sitting there talking with a friend. But... I'll say if you if you if you hand wave too much, pretty soon you're doing a diceless story game, right? Yeah, so. yeah. So, I mean, like, there's a reason that there's a reason that D20 games have stuck around, and that's because rolling dice is inherently fun. Um, chance is fun, um, and so you don't want to take that away from them. You don't want to take their agency away from them, but you do want to. You know, especially when you're trying to get a lot of story out or it's a social encounter where you just want it to flow smoothly. If you're having them roll on everything, um, it ends up just taking forever and it, mm. it, it takes away from the pacing. So, you know, like in a social encounter, if they're bluffing about a bunch of stuff, um, but there's a super crucial thing they're going to lie about, um, I'll have them roll at the beginning of the conversation to just sort of set the standard for how good they are at lying today and then you know for the big crucial lie that they have to pull off i'll have them roll for that one but i won't have them you know roll each time they tell a little falsehood Mm -hmm. yeah and i i even find myself uh just my game session last weekend where we're kind of sort of running through the uh princes of the apocalypse storyline that wizards put out a little while ago and uh there's a page or so of of random encounter tables, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and the system for how, when to roll and how to roll and whatever. And, and I found myself several times. It's like, well, I rolled a random encounter, and it was an encounter with one of the cults that they're going to run into later on. I'm going to play that, whether it's you know an easy encounter, or a hard encounter, depending on the, the luck of the dice and how many enemies there are, right? But when later on I have a random encounter and it's you know. 1d3 wolves. Yeah. And there's no encounter before that, and there's no encounter coming after that. It's the only encounter of the day. It's like, well, it's just going to kill like 20 minutes of our game time, and they're going to win. So how about if I just sort of describe that they hear the howling, and they make a nature check and avoid it, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, it's like some of the things that are super exciting at first level, you have to realize, you know, even like, 
third or fourth level are maybe already not as exciting and just adding more wolves to the encounter doesn't necessarily make it fit more with like yeah. what they should be concerned about at that I point. I mean that encounter is not adding anything to the story so it just it avoids the pacing rather than continues it right? Yeah well and it's like like I love first level. I love that at first level a kobold with a crossbow like you're terrified of that right like <laughs> kobold with a crossbow you are like hiding behind whatever is available and shaking in your boots and you know for most of us that's what it would be like in real life right mm-hmm. somebody points a crossbow at you it's like holy crap um versus like after we've been playing this campaign for forever like if you play computer, or at least for me, if you play computer RPGs, it's like at the beginning of Skyrim, it's like, explore everything, go everywhere, make sure every bit of the map gets the black out of it, <laughs> you know? Um, and it's like, anytime you see an animal, go find out what that is, talk to every NPC. And then like 40 hours in, it's like, no, no, I just want to... I want to advance the story. I want the main mm-hmm. storyline. Like, bleh. so I tend to have a lot of random encounters at the beginning of a campaign, but practically no random encounters, you know, leading up to the climax and stuff. Like they, at that point, they shouldn't be random. They mm-hmm. shouldn't be random, right? You want the you want the story to be crescendoing. Everything that they're doing should be pushing to that climax. Or you find a way to have the encounter and hand wave the the actual dice rolling and, and move on, right? Yeah, or I take a random encounter, like, you know, if they're insisting on exploring and stuff, I let them have a random encounter, but I try and actually make that meaningful and make it fit into the story. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I have the monster drop something that's significant, or, you know, the character is definitely having, like, a character arc that's important. I try and make that random encounter fuel for the character arc. But it's gotta, at that point, like, at the beginning, just getting a chance to fight and try out your character's uh, powers and everything is exciting. But by the end, it all should feel like it has meaning. Does the pacing of your story need to change depending on your your the situation that the, the characters are in? Like, is the pacing of a dungeon crawl different than the pacing of a, of a role-playing heavy urban sort of session? Or uh, or can you, do the same sort of rules apply? Um, to me, the same rules apply. It, a story is a story. Um, and, you know, they, I mean, I have a whole other death to the three-act structure rant, but... The three-act structure has stuck around for a very long time because it works for most people. Um, and so, you know, while the specifics may change, while what the climate, the climax looks like may change, while the number of sort of, uh, mysteries that you have to solve or people that you have to meet or people that you have to defeat or whatever may change based on the genre, um, I feel like the pacing is one thing underlying it that actually is pretty much the same. Okay. This is by the time you're approaching the end, it's don't waste the, like, at the beginning, I hesitate to call it a waste of time, but like the characters are getting to know themselves, they're getting to know each other, um, they're getting to know their characters' abilities. Uh, a lot of times if it's a group that hasn't played before, played together before, they're getting to know each other's play styles. And so you want to give them a lot of space to just sort of explore that and figure out how to work together and, you know, just learn who their characters are. But by the time you're heading toward the end of the story, um, you don't want to waste their time at all. And I mean, again, this is, um, this is assuming a multi-session campaign. Um, you know, I've right, right. played at this point in multiple Pathfinder campaigns that each lasted for multiple years. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, by the time you've been playing the story for a year and a half, like, when you feel like you're getting up to the climax, like, you want the pacing to feel breakneck at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, especially since the more powerful your characters get, like, the longer combats take, 
and stuff like that. So, you know, it's really important to keep it on pace at that point. But I think even in, you know, if you're playing a one night session, one, you know, a one shot, basically, it still has that same, like, mm. toward the end, people, people are getting tired. You know, you want to make sure that it's exciting and that it's rewarding and that it's meaningful. No, no, we must get bogged down in the currency conversion. I know, right? <laughs> now that's, that's that. That said, you don't you don't want to always push your your plotting and your pacing at a, at a breakneck speed. Uh, it is appropriate to slow down uh, the pacing at times, um, if if nothing else, to add variety to the to the session. Um, so so when should when should the the story the pacing be be sped up and when should it be slowed down? Do you think? Well, I mean, it, for me, it follows sort of, you know, the traditional story map where, you know, you have, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm about to cite Save the Cat, but I'm about to cite Save the Cat, um, which is a book that, you know, kind of ruined movies, but um, came out a while back. It's a guide to screenwriting. Um, and it was intended for newbie screenwriters trying to sell their first screenplay, right? So it was like, here's what you need to do to write a screenplay that has a chance of getting purchased. Um, and unfortunately for all of us who like movies, um, it, it was, it's extremely precise. I mean, it doesn't quite be like on page six of your script, this needs to happen. Um, but it's almost that. I mean, the reason it's called Save the Cat is because in, it talks about how in the first, I think it's like four minutes of the screenplay, your hero has to demonstrate something that makes them likable. They have to do something that will make the audience sympathize with them or at least understand them. Um, and, you know, one of the examples they use is there's a cat in danger and the hero saves the cat. And that's how you know they're a good person and they're the hero of the movie. So it's made, um, it's made blockbuster movies kind of depressingly predictable as far as their pacing um, because once you've read it it's like oh yeah we're coming up on moment 18 there's going to be a new opportunity um, but that said you know the story structure that you learn in elementary school where it's like here is the rising action and the climax and the denouement um or, you know, books on beginning screenwriting, stuff like that. That's all useful for a GM because turns out that, you know, that sort of basic structure works. And so for me, the part where you want to keep it moving, where you want it to feel kind of breathless and breakneck is the rising action section leading up to the climax. So like once your players know who the final boss is, once they know what the final thing they have to do to save the kingdom kill the dragon or whatever. Um, and once they know how to do it and where they have to go and all of that stuff, um, I think you want to keep it moving really briskly. But everything up to that point to me is pretty fungible, right? Like if it's an investigation, you want them to be able to chase down a few red herrings and you want the pace to be really fluid. You want to be able to give them time to like mull over clues and solve puzzles and that stuff. Yeah, I mean, if nothing else, I think uh, I would I would say it's usually good to start with a high-paced, a, a fast-paced scene uh, to as sort of a hook and and get the players interested in the session, and then and then let it slow down with maybe one, ex depending on how long your session is, maybe one more sort of fast-paced moment before it slows down and then slowly builds to the to the ultimate climax. Yeah, um, I would compare it to sort of a cold open on a TV show, the little scene that happens before the opening credits, um, which usually is pretty fast-paced, or it, it um, contains something super dramatic that gets you hooked. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, like, your opening scene doesn't necessarily have to be a combat. Like, combat is kind of the easiest thing to do, but um, it can be anything that has something dramatic mm -hmm. that happens and kind of gives the characters something to do. I mean, basically, what it comes... Like, have either of you watched Orphan Black? I have not. 
Not yet. Okay. Um, well, the pilot of that show is brilliant because at it's pretty fast-paced, but at every point, at any moment in the pilot, you know what the character's goal is, the main character. Like, she is trying to do something, she needs to do something, she wants to do something, but at every moment, she has a goal. And the, what that goal is changes throughout the pilot episode, but she's never kind of sitting there like, well, what do we do next? And so, you know, in the interest of keeping the game moving, you don't want your players to spend a lot of time just sort of like, okay, well, we're here in this village, what do we do? Um, and so, like, your first scene should give them a clear goal as far as, like, what the first thing they do is, whether it's go to this village or find this person, um, or, you know, they discover that somebody's after them. Um, you want to give them something that they know what they need to do, um, even if they don't know what step two in the process is, they know what step one is. And I think that there's a period in there after they've gotten that first goal where you can, if you have a group that is pretty self-directed, you don't have to lead them by the nose. Like, you know, if goal number one is get to the village um, so you're safe from the storm or whatever, once you have them in the village, you can let them kind of ask around, get to know people, listen for rumors, investigate. Um, but, you know, if you don't want there to be too much wheel spinning if they don't kind of take the initiative or, you know, yeah. if they don't take the initiative fairly soon, then you kind of want to have an NPC walk up to them and start a bar brawl or something. <laughs> well, and, and that takes me to the to my next question then. So we've recognized that there are moments where it's okay to, to let, to slow the action down, or maybe it's more accurate to say to let the action slow down. Um, yeah maybe the natural state of action and pacing is to be relatively slow and it is an injection of uh, activity that, that forces it to not be. Uh, but how do you allow or, uh, uh, the pacing to slow down without allowing it to become boring? Um, it's, I mean, uh, uh, running an RPG is kind of a dance between the jam, the jam and the players where who's taking the lead is switching off mm. or like um, another way to put it is if you've ever done like improv, um, there's a principle called yes. And which is you don't contradict something that another actor has done. You just take it and add to it. And like what you add can be an elaboration or it, it can be a redirection, but like, you know, if, the person next to you, or if, if the person you're working with is like, and where were you last night? You don't be like, you know, what are you talking about? I was right here. You know, this is not a thing. You, you make something out of it. You go with them. And um, I think that the most important thing in ensuring that it's interesting as a GM is that that attitude that you have that same attitude toward your players. Like, if they're really interesting... I've had entire sessions where there's no combat, right? Where my players just basically explored the village I had created for them and, you know, strategized about how they were going to find the person they needed to find. And, um, you know, there was a lot of humor. There was a lot of just kind of wackiness. They were sort of searching this militia camp. And so the whole, like, sneaking... They were coordinating, distracting NPCs away from their tents so the rogue could sneak in there and search their belongings. And, you know, if they're having fun with that um, and it doesn't look like anybody's bored and, like, that's what they want to do, um, that is one of those times where, as a GM, you give up control and you, you know, you go with what they're doing and you let them take the lead. Um, and, you know, I've had games I've played where the players have basically set the pace and directed the action the entire time. Um, if you have a group where they can do that and they can do that in a way that includes everybody and nobody's bored, that's great. It's just if you notice that somebody's bored or, you know, if your players as a group seem to be getting bored, if they seem to be getting frustrated, then that's when you step in and you take control back. Yeah, which actually goes to one of the, the 
main pieces of advice for, for running a game anyway, right? Is that you need to be able to pick up on those cues from your players. Like I, uh, it is not uncommon for, for me to, uh, be engaged in a in a extensive role playing situation, an investigation situation, or whatever, uh, and then I get you know to the point where I feel like they're at about the halfway point, and then I look around and I realize, oh, they're not into this anymore. <laughs> you know, this yeah. is not fun anymore. I just need to figure out how to move on quicker. Yeah, um, it's it's weird to me um, that you know the stereotype of role players is as being socially awkward um, because I think that to be a good GM you have to actually be pretty sensitive to social cues or you have to have the sort of trust with your group where you're not going to have a problem with it if they just tell you directly like we're kind of bored with this can we do something else or you know fine we give up who, do, you know, who is the person we're supposed to talk to and what are they supposed to tell us um, but, you know, most people aren't comfortable with being that direct. And so as a GM, yeah, you you actually have to be very sensitive to how your players are feeling. I mean, it gets into the same thing with um, potentially objectionable content, right? Like how much you describe what happens to somebody when they get hit with a sword or, um, you know, just how violent things are, you know, if there's any, like, overtly sexual content, stuff like that. Relationships, like, all of that. Yeah, yeah. Like, you as a GM have to... I mean, that stuff has real stakes to it, right? Like, you can end up with people really hurt or re-traumatized or whatever if you do stuff like that badly. Um, so you have to be very sort of sensitive to cues that somebody's not having fun anymore. Or be really explicit. What is the what is it the uh, the X card? Yeah, yeah. I mean that that helps if you you know are not as good at reading those cues mm -hmm. and um, if your players are comfortable doing that. But a lot of times people, you know, there's a there can be a great deal of peer pressure in games, mm -hmm. um, especially games where we're all sitting around a table looking each other in the eye. Um, so you know, people if it if somebody at the table thinks that everybody else is having fun with a particular subplot and it's bothering them, like they may not feel comfortable. They may not want to be the one who, you know, is the fun killer. Um, so yeah, as a GM, like you kind of have to be watching for that and noticing if they're not as engaged. Yeah. You've used the, the X card in the past, haven't you, Tracy? Uh, I haven't used it yet, but, uh, I'm okay. a proponent of it. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it's a great idea. Um, but yeah, there is a stigma. There is a stigma there, right? Because you don't want to be. Sometimes people aren't comfortable, but still don't want to ruin other people's fun or what have you, right? Don't want to don't want to be that person. So. Yeah, and I mean, it's not even just objectionable content stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, like we had a um, we were playing through Kingmaker, which is another Pathfinder Adventure Path um, that lets you. It sort of introduces some real time strategy type stuff um, into a 20 game um, in that you have a kingdom with an economy that you build and like you basically build this economic engine um, and so for a while in the beginning because you know everybody around the table was a game designer um, we were all into like alright let's build this economic engine it'll generate magic items for us this is super cool um, and some of us stayed engaged with that and found it fun for longer than others. And so, you know, there was a point where, you know, it was just a couple of people were on their phones a lot, not really paying attention while we were doing the sort of kingdom stuff each session. And so, you know, after a while, Lisa ended up being like, okay, you know what, like from now on, we're just going to do this by email between sessions or, you know, we're just going to hand wave it. But, like, we're not going to spend time each time doing, you know, what magic items did it generate? Cool. Tracy, you got any more questions about pacing or, or hand-waving or any other advice that you'd like to give? Uh, I think the only thing, a lot of what was touched on, particularly at the end, also reminds me of Hamlet's hit points that we mm -hmm. covered once. Yeah, I thought of that, too. Yeah, where they talk about up and down beats <laughs> and, and how to mix that in to make sure your players don't 
have an interesting that they do have an interesting story instead of maybe feeling a little too beat down or a little too invincible written by the great robin d laws uh always recommended oh nice i have not heard of it i'll check it out there you go check it out sounds great any last thoughts from you jessica um nope just you know end of the day remember it's a game it's meant to be fun it's meant to make sure that people are having fun so you know and that includes, that includes everybody so it's always very easy to forget sometimes as some dms have a hard time remembering that, the, that they need to look out for the player's fun and sometimes the yeah. players need to remember that the dm is also a player and he needs to have fun too or your yeah yeah and i mean just from the jam side like you know, as players, remember, um, it's expensive, and I don't just mean monetarily, but I mean that too, but it's expensive to be a jam. Like, you have to invest a lot of time, you have to invest a lot of mental effort. Um, so yeah, just remember, like, your jam's supposed to be having fun too. Don't be a jerk. Always good advice. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Awesome. Uh, and if people would like to find out more advice from you, Jessica, where, where should they go? Um, they can find me on Twitter um, as Delafina, D-E-L-A-F-I-N-A-777, um, or on Tumblr at jessicalprice.tumblr.com. Um, or you can come visit me on the Paizo forums. Very good. Well, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. And that's the end of this episode. We'd like to say thank you to Jessica Price for coming on to the show and for all of you for supporting the show by shopping from our affiliate links when you use Amazon or DMs Guild. And if you want to get a hold of us, you can email thetomeshow at gmail.com. That's all one word, thetomeshow at gmail.com. Or call the biz line and leave a voicemail message at 919-BIZ-TOME. That's 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. And that's episode 263 where, uh, whatever, you fill in the rest. In this episode of The Tone, The Tone, The Tone, The Tone, The Tone, The Tone, The Tone. I'm on the wall.